You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Revelation 19, Celebration in Heaven. After this, I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. Because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with his sexual immorality and he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. A second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who is seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. A voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all his servants and the ones who fear him both small and great. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder say, Alleluia, because our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven flowed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and sorry, written on his robe, on his thigh, King of kings, Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, 
And he called out in a loud voice, saying to all the birds flying high overhead, Come gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of military commanders, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of the horses and of the riders, and the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast was taken prisoner, and along with it the false prophet, who had performed the signs in his presence. It deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image with these signs, both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds ate their fill of their flesh. The word of the Lord. Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it, so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophets are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. 
Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that sorry, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found in the written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. All right. Uh, I know for a lot of you it's a four-day weekend, but we're going to work this morning, all right? We've got a lot of work to do, so I want you to keep those Bibles open. Uh, we're going to take a look at, all right, that's my starting timer. Thank you. Got it. All right. Some of you are trying to give me a hint because um, we had a lot of long sermons through this series, but there's just so much, so much to get through. So. Uh, we're going to look at this morning six visions that John has, is given to John, uh, about the end of the world, the final judgment, judgment day. And, uh, and so I want to jump kind of straight into it, just a little bit of context here. I think this, what we're going to see here, is, a, uh, is the same battle that we've, been, we've seen before from a couple of different angles. So we, we first were introduced to this battle back, way back in chapter 16. It's the Battle of Armageddon, um, chapter 16, verse 13 to 16, I think it is. So just jog your memory. He says, Then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth. Remember the dragon is Satan. From the beast's mouth, it's a, like a political leader. And from the mouth of the false prophet, a religious leader. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who travel the, to the kings of the world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God. That's what we're looking at today, the Almighty. Look, I am coming like a thief. This is Jesus. Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. That is, blessed are those who are not unprepared when Jesus comes again. So they assembled the kings at the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Now that's exactly where we are right now. And Jesus does indeed appear like a thief. We haven't seen him for a little while, if you've been paying attention. Jesus has kind of moved off stage for a little bit. But just like he said, he appears all of a sudden like a thief. And we're going to see it in verse 11 of chapter 19. Verse 11 to 16. This is vision one. You know, each new vision begins with the same words. So, then I saw. That's a fresh new vision. We'll look at each one. He says, then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with a rod of iron, or an iron rod. 
He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Judgment Day comes and Jesus judges the world. Everyone who's ever lived with perfect justice. That's his job. He is the judge of all people and he judges with perfect justice. That's why his eyes are aflame. We saw this when he was first introduced to us way back at the beginning of the book. Eyes aflame, symbolic of perfect vision. He sees all things. Evil tries to hide in the darkness. We saw that last week. But Jesus' piercing gaze pierces the darkness. He sees all things. His eyes are aflame. He has many crowns where these false leaders and earthly powers wear crowns to sort of establish their authority. Jesus has many crowns, that is, innumerable crowns. He has all the crowns. He has all the authority. How is it that he can judge me? Who is he to judge me? He can judge me because he has all authority and he sees with perfect clarity. Eyes aflame, many crowns. He's got a bloody robe. It's not really clear whether this is his own blood because he's the lamb that was slain or it's the blood of his enemies. Maybe it's a bit of both. But in any case, his, whereas his army are wearing white robes because they've been, had their, their robes washed in the blood of Jesus to make them white, his robe is bloody. And this is the really interesting thing about the description of Jesus here. This, is really, this really got to me this week. He, we're, so he's got, this, he's got a sword out of his mouth and a, and a name on his thigh. So this is, the, this is the thing, and it really matches up with what we know about Jesus, his upside-down kingdom. We saw that a whole lot in the, the, the series we did on the, the Sermon on the Mount. So he has a sword where his words should be, and he has a word where his sword should be. That's why, like, you have a sword on your thigh and obviously words out of your mouth. For Jesus, it's the other way around. His weapon is his word. It's the only weapon he needs. His judgments are pure and true. He is the very word of God. So the only weapon he needs is his word, and where his weapon should be, he has a word, which is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the authority that he brings. He doesn't need to wear a sword because all of his authority to do the thing that he's about to do is in his title. He is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. He is unrivaled. One of the big things to take away, like if you're the kind of person who just takes one thing away from each sermon, this is the thing that's clear all throughout When it comes to the final battle, there is no contest. In fact, I only really realized, maybe yesterday, as I was thinking back through these couple of chapters, the the, the last battle, there really isn't any battling going on. Like before the fight can even begin, it's over. Because Jesus has no rival. Let's take a look at that second vision then. We have Jesus riding a white horse 
And then on to vision 2, verse 17 to 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he called out in a loud voice, saying to all the birds flying overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of military commanders, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and of their riders, and the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, small and great. This angel wants everyone to know the outcome has already been decided. Before the battle is even joined, he's calling the birds in to eat the carcasses of everyone who is going to be defeated. This is a big flex, right? Right before the battle is enjoined. Birds, you better get in here. There's going to be a lot of bodies. When I was a kid, I used to do, when we used to play Monopoly a lot, we would set it up on the floor in our family room, and uh, before the game began, I would just sit back from the board, like give it a good like foot, and I would tell everyone I needed to make room for all the money and the properties that I was going to accumulate. That's, a, that's called a flex, all right? That's just a, it's a little bit of a taunt, but it's also just a statement of fact, this is how it's going to go today. All right, and, and so I didn't have many friends as a kid, but, 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 but that's what's going on here. Before anything even happens, birds, you're going to need to be here to clean up the mess. The table has been set for the carrion birds. And, you know, I think particularly in our culture today, this could come across as very triumphalistic and... Um, and particularly with what's going on in the world today, we're just a little bit sick of wars and violence. But you need to come back to the purpose of the book. Remember, one of the purposes of this book, well, just think about the audience. This book is written, it's a, it's a letter written to seven churches who are suffering greatly at the hands of these rulers. This is a word of encouragement to them that the current state of events that looks like God is weak, Christians are weak, these powers are unrivaled, they do whatever they want, they have impunity, that means they, they can kill as many people as they want, no one brings them to justice. That state of affairs, as it seems right now, is not the way it's going to continue forever. The tables will be turned. That's the purpose of this book. So those suffering Christians need to know in really stark terms the fate of those who are putting them to death as the letter is written. There will be no contest. It's a word of encouragement to suffering Christians. And if we don't get it, it's largely due to the fact that we're just not suffering Christians. Vision 3. Chapter 20, verse 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released 
for a short time. So as I said, this is, in my view, this is the same battle looked at from different angles. It began with the Armageddon, the, the, the plain of Armageddon with God's enemies all arrayed around him. Picked up in chapter 19, as we've just seen, with no contest defeat, KO in the first round. And picked up again here from another angle again. When it comes to the thousand year thing, it's worth just talking about a little bit. So, this thousand years, it's mentioned a couple of times in the entire Bible, and yet it's just had this outsized place in people's theology, particularly in the last couple of hundred years, particularly because of a very small section of the, well, not a small section of the American church, a large section of the American church, which is a small section of the global church. All right, so the thousand-year thing. It's not mentioned in any of our creeds, and that's because it's not a big deal. It's not something that you should, like a hill you should die on, your view of what this thousand-years thing refers to. To put it briefly, some people think that uh, Jesus returns, his second coming happens, and then we get this thousand-year period of relative peace with Jesus on the earth and Christians suddenly having more influence than they used to have and not being suffering persecution anymore. Jesus returns, then there's a thousand years, and then there's a sharp battle before the end. Uh, I, I don't think that's the case at all. It, like, just, if you just read the, the New Testament, all of the references to Jesus' return is concurrent with the end of the world, right? So Jesus returns, that's it. There's no like extra thousand years after that. It's just he comes, the whole thing is settled. Other people think, therefore, that um, there is a thousand year, thousand year period that happens right before Jesus returns. And, uh, and so, you, so what Christians experience, whenever this thousand years begins, Christians suddenly experience life getting much better. Uh, you have a thousand years where uh, Christians are kind of ruling the place and you know, putting things in order and things ought to be better because the world is kind of being run according to kingdom principles. And so that's a thousand years and then Jesus returns. Uh, my view is that just like all the other numbers in the book of Revelation, a thousand years is symbolic. I can't think of a reason why all the other numbers would be symbolic, and then, but this is definitely a thousand years to the day. A thousand years is symbolic. This is like the majority view through church history. It's symbolic of a long period of time. That's why it's a thousand. And what it symbolizes is all of the time between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. This is the church age. It's where we're living right now, what the Bible calls the last days. All of the days from when Jesus ascends to heaven after his resurrection until he returns again. So this thousand-year period is happening right now, the symbolic of this entire time that we're in right now. And what that means for us is, according to this passage, that all of the time from when Jesus ascended until the day when Jesus returns, all of that time, uh, during that time, Satan is bound. Satan has been bound. 
This might be a little bit hard for us to come to terms with because it seems like sometimes Satan is just ruling the place. But this passage written for our encouragement and the encouragement of people who are suffering says Satan has been restrained. This makes sense of other New Testament passages, like in Colossians 2, Paul describes what Jesus did when he was raised from the dead. So he said, Jesus erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us, and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. So God in Jesus and through Jesus, by his triumphant resurrection from death, disarms the powers that are arrayed against us, including Satan himself. He's been bound. And the reason he's bound is so that the gospel can flourish from Jerusalem to Caroline Springs. The reason the gospel has gone from Jerusalem to Judea, through Samaria, and to the ends of Caroline Springs is because Satan was bound at the ascension of Jesus. If you just flip back to that last passage, what's the language he uses? He gives us the so that, that. yeah, bound for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss, put a seal on it, so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years, until the church age is completed. So the reason it's done is so that we won't be deceived. The reason that you were able to hear the gospel and comprehend it, receive it, is because Satan has been prevented from deceiving you. This is good news. This gives us confidence in our evangelism, right? You can communicate the gospel clearly to someone confident that they won't be deceived by Satan, that they will understand and comprehend and receive it. This this doesn't mean that Satan's got no influence on the earth. He obviously does, but it's restricted. He's restrained. It should make us confident. I remember as a 19-year-old kid after I came to faith, I've told her the story, lots of demonic nonsense going on in that period of time, and I spent a year terrified of Satan, terrified of an unbound Satan. My view was that it's much more like Eastern religion, yin and yang, you know, like a dualism, like you got God on the good side and Satan on the bad side, and they're just like two boxes, and sometimes Satan lands a big punch, and sometimes Jesus gives him an uppercut, and that, that picture, just there's nothing in the Bible that gives us that picture. There's no contest. Satan's not just completely off the leash doing whatever he wanted, but I spent the first year of my Christian life with the light on every night because I was terrified that he was just going to spring up out of my bed or something. Yeah. There's only one King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Vision 5, verse 4 to 6. You still with me? That was a big sigh. All right, four to six. Then I saw thrones. 
and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The throne is the throne of judgment. And people are in heaven, reigning with God, in judgment over the world. This is happening all of the time in that thousand years from Jesus' ascension to his coming again. This is the first resurrection. Now this is a little bit confusing because he's not talking about the bodily resurrection, the resurrection we talk about when we say the Apostles' Creed. That's what all of us Christians believe in. We don't believe in a, some kind of sky fairy existence with harps and, well, there's probably harps, but, you know, cream cheese and wings and, like, that's not, he- that's not heaven. Heaven is new creation. Heaven is resurrection existence, bodily resurrection. He's not talking about that resurrection. That comes at the new creation. We're going to get there in the next two weeks. This is the first resurrection, uh, and that's why it's not, we know it's not bodily. That's why he says, I, I saw the souls, right? The, the disembodied souls of those who had been beheaded, what, what theologians call the intermediate state. So the state of people after they have died, but before they receive their resurrection bodies, the intermediate state, the disembodied souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus. That's who he sees ruling and reigning over all things with Jesus. You've got to think, again, this is encouragement for suffering Christians. You've just seen, everyone look at me for a second. This is what you put yourself in, in the context. You're in the first century in modern day Turkey, Western Asia, all right? You're there, you, you, you've, you, your whole household has come to believe in the Lord Jesus. And you've just witnessed your son's head cut off, right? They, they took him out and they cut off his head. Bunch of Roman legionaries. His head's taken off his body for believing that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords instead of what has been prescribed for them to believe, which is that Caesar is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he's dead, blood pouring out all over the dirt. What John sees here is that son of yours ruling and reigning with Jesus in heaven. That's the encouragement, right? That's the encouragement to persevere even to death. The souls of those who have been beheaded 
I think that just goes for any, any form of martyrdom, all right? Whether it's beheading or crucifixion or anything else, drowning, torn into, like all of the things I love to do back then to Christians. Those who have been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus, because of the word of God, who had refused to worship the beast, refused to bow down to Caesar, refused to deny the lordship of Jesus, refused to accept that mark, remember the false Shema? Refused. They were slaughtered, piles of them slaughtered. They were hung up on crosses and lit to be streetlights along Roman roads. They were slaughtered, but they're now ruling and reigning with Jesus. This is the first resurrection. Those people are blessed. They were slaughtered, and they were blessed. The second death, the final judgment, the death that is for all time, that death can't touch them. They're safe. Safe with the Lord Jesus. When that age, when the church age, this age that we're in right now, when that comes to an end, when Jesus comes like a thief, when you least expect it, when Jesus rides in, the returning king, when that age comes to an end, Verse 7 to 10, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, Old Testament pagan false gods, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Are you getting the point here? There's no contest. They're like the sand of the sea, these enemies of God. It's like a Lord of the Rings kind of picture, right? There's just, just throngs and throngs and throngs of these enemies surrounding the blessed city, surrounding the saints. It looks like there's just, there's, it's going to be a bloodbath. And yet, I can't even read a single fist being thrown in anger. I can't, I, there's nothing about an arrow being fired, a sword being swung. Fire just comes down from heaven and consumes them. There's no contest. I keep referring to the last battle because I'm a C.S. Lewis fan and a Narnia nerd, but there really, like, there is none. The devil, the beast, the false prophet, these symbols of political power, religious power, unfettered power, all the power that the world can offer. 
these participants in systems of injustice and slavery. Sex, money, power is all they're interested in, bent on domination. These symbols of ultimate earthly power are just consumed in a second. And those three at the head of all of God's enemies are tormented forever and ever. All of God's enemies are dealt with completely and eternally. God's mission, as we're going to see from now to the end of the book, is to get the hell out of earth. He loves the earth. He made the earth. He will remake the earth. He will bring heaven to earth. This is the abode and destiny of everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus for eternity. This place is going to be beyond our wildest dreams, everything that God always intended it to be. And the reason is he's going to take out everything that's evil. He's going to take it out. He's going to get all of the hell out of earth. And it happens just like that. You know, Paul talks about, in 2 Corinthians, about when the last trumpet sounds, everything happens in the blink of an eye. Transformation. God loves his earth. He loves the people of his earth. He loves everything about his good earth. Animals and trees and everything that he made, he loves. He said it's very good and he's going to restore it one day. We'll get to that. I don't want to jump ahead too far. Right now we've got to, we've got to finish the final judgment. So vision number six, chapter 20, verse 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their, their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades, that is the, the grave, gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the final judgment. Not, nothing more after this. The final judgment. The day of the Lord, that day that the Old Testament prophets were talking about so much, the day that in some sense all of the Bible is working towards, the day that we should fear, 
with solemnity, sobriety. The day of the Lord has come. It's the final judgment. The judgment of all people who have ever lived. Everyone. Everyone who's ever lived is going to be given up by the grave. And they're going to stand before a single white throne. Jesus is on the throne. He is the supreme judge. He has authority to judge all people. And he has fiery eyes that see all things that have ever happened. And most terrifying of all, everyone who's ever lived will be judged according to their works. We were warned about this. Remember in 2 Corinthians, we talked through this book a while back, 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It's pretty scary. Am I the only one who's scared about that? All people who have ever lived judged according to all the things they've ever done. The wages for sin is death. The, your book, the book of your works, is just a record of sin. Some other good stuff thrown in there. But for the love of God, please don't leave here today relying on your book of works to make you right with God. That is just a record of reasons for you to be condemned. Like even the good ones, I've seen, I can see a couple of you, good, you're good people, even you. It's just a record of wrongs that will absolutely condemn you and everyone else. All the, all the big names. Adolf Hitler, he's getting condemned by his book of works. Mother Teresa, she's getting condemned by her book of works. So, to put it crudely, we're all screwed. That's the message of this passage. There is a judge with absolute authority who can take Satan and just piff him. In fact, he didn't even do it himself. He got one of his angels, just picked up Satan, dropped him in the lake of fire, right? And he sees all things. He has recorded every one of your works. And whether you died in the first century or the 19th century or tomorrow, you're going to be whipped up out of the grave, whether it was in the sea or on the land or anywhere else, and you're going to be put before the judgment seat of Christ. And so I'll say it again. 
Email me if you need to, but we're all screwed. Until we get to verse 15. Verse 15, let's read it. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So everyone is screwed. Everyone is thrown into the lake of fire unless their name is written in the book of life. The book of life is your only hope. Makes it really simple, doesn't it? And stop thinking about whether you've done enough good or bad to be right with God. Like an astonishingly popular idea in our world today across religions. I just need one gram more in the good side. And then I'll be in paradise. Forget it. Your only hope is to have your name written in the book of life. Which early in Revelation we learned was written at the foundation of the world. So your participation in that action has been completely taken away from you. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And so we have the imperative that Jesus gave us Matthew 28 has a lot to do with this passage. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the Jesus we just read about, right? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, a thousand years. This is a message that we need to share with people. And the message is one of life. What you see there, it's just John 3.16 in action. All right? it's, the, it's the dramatic play version of John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's good news that you're not relying on the book of works to be saved. It's good news because God himself has done the works required. God himself, in God's book of works, it features as the climax of the entire book, it features Jesus dying on the cross for your sin and rising again for your salvation. God so loved the world, he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish in a lake of fire but have eternal life. The Christian message is all about life, eternal life. You are not immortal 
by virtue of being a person. Immortality is a gift given to you by God himself. Eternal life can only be yours by gift. All you need to do is receive it. To have your name written in the book of life, all you need to do is receive it. Everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's the message. I love that John paints this picture. Remember, these are visions, so they're painted in very vibrant colors. But I love that he paints it so vibrantly so that we have no, we're under no illusion about our destiny, the destiny of all people who have ever lived. Judgment. But for those whose names are written in the book of life, eternal life. I don't know how more clearly I could put this before you. But it is very binary, okay? I know today we've got a problem with binary things, but this, this is an example of something that is, all right? Before you now is a choice, a choice freely given, a choice to ride your luck roll a dice, come to judgment, and see if your book of works can excuse you. I'm trying to tell you that's a fool's errand for everyone, not just you, anyone. But you can take that road. God gives you that freedom. Or you can run to the returning king. You can run to that white horse and throw yourself before him and say, have mercy on me, king of kings, lord of lords. And the, and the weird thing in this story is that that king, dripping with blood, ready to do battle, that king is the kind of king who jumps down from his horse and wraps you up in a hug and says, welcome. Welcome, good and faithful servant. Welcome to you, even if you're like that thief on the cross who's, as he's dying, asks for mercy. What does Jesus say to him? I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. I can't think of a single reason why you wouldn't run to Jesus for mercy. Now, the news gets better than all of that. Because in the next two weeks, we're going to see chapters 21 and 22 and this incredible picture, this vivid view of the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the, the, the eternal dwelling 
for God and all of his people who have ever lived. We're going to get to that. That's the seventh vision. Again, it's introduced with the then I saw, chapter 20, verse 1. We'll get to it next week. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Can't wait. I'm going to pray for us. Father, um, we are so grateful in this church. I just know it. I can feel it. We're so grateful for your word spoken to us. And we receive it eagerly. And we want to submit to it in every area of our lives. We want to understand it. We want to comprehend it. We also want to act on it. We want to be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. So we need your grace. We need your spirit. Please, Lord, take this time that we've spent together in your word and make it fruitful in our lives. God, have mercy on anyone in this room who has not yet received mercy. Lord, we know that this is only a gift that you can give. We can't persuade or convince or coerce. Only you can open hearts and minds. Please do it. If there's anyone in this space this morning, Lord, a precious creation who has not yet received the gift of eternal life, I pray that they would. Even now, during this next song, maybe, maybe during, during that time they might come before you, Jesus, and just simply ask you for mercy. To simply request that they be adopted into your family. Please do it. Do it for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, listen, uh, I think we should, we should have an opportunity to pray with anyone who wants to become a Christian this morning, anyone who wants to um, throw themselves on God's mercy. The, um, the invitation is unconditional. Yeah. So you don't have to look within yourself to see whether you might be worthy of it. It's just unconditional. Anyone who's ever lived, everyone who's along with anything they've ever done is, um, is invited. So if you want to pray with someone, um, I'm just going to nominate the, uh, the back corner down there. And yeah, if, you, if you're here and you want to pray with someone, you know who you are. Just make your way back down there and we'll have a little party of prayer down there and Bible says the angels will be rejoicing and it'll be a good day. Um, otherwise, just stay in your seat for this song. Take some time to reflect on what you've heard. And, um, and then Suzanne will come and pray for us.
in the days that God has numbered I was made to walk with Him Yet I look for worldly treasure And forsake the King of Kings But mine is hope in my Redeemer Though I fall, His love is sure for Christ has paid for every failing I am His forevermore Minor tears in times of sorrow Darkness not yet understood Though the valley I must travel Where I see no earthly good But mine is peace that flows from heaven And the strength in times of need I know my pain will not be wasted Christ completes His work in me Forevermore. 